Welcome to Season 3 of the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. Hello, everybody. Hey, everybody. This is Brandon Pitzer speaking. This is Dan Norton. And we're here today with another episode of the Filament Games podcast. Uh, What we will be doing today is interviewing our dear friend, Matthew Farber, Mm -hmm. author of the book, Gamify Your Classroom, a field guide to game-based learning. But before we do that, I need to figure something out. I need to know what Dan Norton is playing. Well, um, still playing the Mario Kart. Okay. Uh, that's kind of a boring, lame answer. So I can give you an anecdote. All right. <laughs> uh, I brought it in last night, and uh, Philman has a Thursday couch gaming club where people hang out and play various things. And so we fired up four person cart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, this is the first time I've ever had one of my own staff tell me to suck it. Well, uh, you know. Yeah, that's what happens. Mario Kart gets free. Mario Kart gets you to <laughs> to gets you out of your uh, formal roles and into a more primal <laughs> form, I guess. Uh, yeah. And and after that, he gave you the people's elbow. Yeah, he did win. He body slammed he, you. He had one more point at the final and then to the Grand Prix. All right. I I had promised a a third of the company to whoever won. So oh. I, I told them that was Stone's third, though. So that was it worked out okay. All right, yeah. all right. I'm gonna find out if I still have a job after this. <laughs> cool, very cool. Um, well, what I've been playing is also still the same thing. Mm-hmm. Still some Skyrim Special Edition. Yeah. Um, I have no anecdote really outside mm. of the fact that I I realized that they played a very elaborate trick on me in the game design, which is that I was doing one of the Thieves Guilds quests. Mm-hmm. And I found a book that was about a forbidden legend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to jump right on that. I'm all about forbidden legends. Yep. I don't know if you know that about me. <laughs> um, but uh, so I get the book. I start following the, tra- the trail of this forbidden legend. And you, like, go through all this long quest, uncover all these, like, sites where all you find, you go to dungeon after dungeon, it actually becomes like a running gag. Every dungeon you go to, you find a deceased adventurer who's clutching the book that you've got. Ah. (laughs) Um, But uh, ultimately, you get far enough along where you have, like, one more dungeon you need to do. Uh And the dungeon requires you to go do the first quest of the Mages Guild. So what what they did was basically a five-hour bamboozle to get me to also join the Mages Guild, like from a game design perspective. Brutal. <laughs> they got me. Brutal. Did yeah. you join the Mages Guild? Yeah, I did. I, know. I never cared for the Mages Guild. <laughs> Nor did I. Yeah. They're arrogant. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I, I usually do the Thieves Guild. It's better. It matches my... I, I don't know if you ever... I like to play the game as a stealth archer, which is... Oh, yeah. That's what I'm doing right now. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> um, well, we're we're breaking ground, Brian. I don't think anyone's really does that style of play in Skyrim. We're. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, if people have questions about how to play as a stealth archer in Skyrim. You can send them along to us. We are on the bleeding edge. Yeah. Of <laughs> of a game that came out in 2011. 2011. Oh. 11, 11, 11. It's the easiest release date to remember ever. Oh. Yeah. We're so old. <laughs> And on that note, we are going to creak 
and stumble yeah, our way into the next segment. Hobble over onto our interview. Uh, I'm tired now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk to Matt. So we're talking to Matthew Farber. Hello. How are you? I'm just fine, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Uh, So what we're talking to Matt about is uh, his book, which is Gamify Your Classroom, A Field Guide to Game-Based Learning, uh, and the very recent revision of that book. Uh, but before we we dive into that uh, kind of centerpiece of the conversation, I would like to know, uh, Matt, just if you could just quickly intro yourself, kind of talk about what you do in these days, uh, where you know your your credibility in the game based learning space, where you're coming from, and uh, kind of what your perspective is with with game based learning. Sure, um, I guess you could say I wear lots of different hats. Mm-hmm. I'm a social studies teacher. That's my main job okay. right now these days. I teach uh, sixth and seventh grade social studies. Um, so I do use games in practice in the field. Uh, I'm also a researcher. I have an um, educational um, technology leadership doctorate. And my dissertation is in how uh, expert teachers use games in their classroom. And that's going to be the topic of a forthcoming book. Nice. Which awesome. I, um, it's already in, in press. Okay. From that, I keep a blog on... Um, Edutopia's website, um, and I um, speak at a lot of conferences, um, including Games for Change this summer. Oh, cool. Looking we'll, forward to that. We will see you oh, there. Oh, yeah, we'll be there. That's exciting. Excellent. Yeah, so my uh, mini talk there is going to be about my um, forthcoming book, which is Game-Based Learning in Action, what awesome. it all actually looks like in the classroom. Okay, and that's, that's through that lens of, like, what, what does it mean when a teacher who's got, like, expertise in this, in this area, what does it look like when they, when they go about it? Is that, is that correct? That's exactly right. My, uh, my dissertation was three teachers who were um, three of the four keynote speakers at Games in Education Symposium up in uh, upstate New York. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, those were uh, uh, Peggy Sheehy, whom you guys should yes, know, we're right? Yes, very fond of. Yep. Uh, Steve Isaacs and uh, Paul DeVarsi. Oh, we hate those two guys. Home. <laughs> oh, horrible. <right>? Yeah. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> so uh, I, it was great because I got to embed myself in their classroom, uh, observe them teach, and um, bring that into my practice. And then um, so cool. writing the book, I wasn't as restricted as a dissertation. I could add myself in as well as other teachers in our network who uh, Peggy calls the tribe. Oh, all and, right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's the whole book about how we teach and our community of practice. Uh, some of that is in this book revision as well. Awesome. Um, you know, how uh, good game-based learning requires a community of practice. It's not, you know, a lone wolf teacher doing it and a bunch of kids staring at a computer screen. Oh, sure. Drinking orange soda. yeah you know i mean we've we've seen more of that uh or a lot of that i should say in teacher training programs the strong emphasis on building a personalized learning network you know whether that's around just straightforward education or uh something a little bit more focused like game-based learning is something more specific like that Mm -hmm. yes Um, i've observed that um um good project-based learning uh is more clearly defined than game-based learning and mm. good project-based learning 
uh, you want to have an authentic project, maybe something that addresses a real-world issue and has publication, right? So, you know, you post something online, let's say like a podcast, right? Mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, my observations of game-based learning teachers, what they do is they engage students in their own passions and their own affinity groups. So students will write game reviews and publish them online or they'll engage in uh, Minecraft forums or on YouTube. So it's not just publishing, but it's also interacting in that affinity space. So it goes even further than uh, where I'm seeing project-based learning because there's that whole interest-driven piece. Sure, sure. It's, you know, it's about that self-guided learning. It's about that, that engagement when, the, when a student can kind of take control of the, of the lesson plan in, in a way. Um, yeah, we, we find that the, the agency component is, is super critical. Um, so uh, I have another question for you, something that we generally cover at the, at the outset of our podcast, um, which is, what do you play in these days? Are you doing any gaming in your, in your free time? I just finished Firewatch. Oh, all right. Uh, okay. Very cool. Excellent. Um, so if listeners aren't familiar, it's, uh, it's like a point-and-click adventure in, uh, in a forest in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And um, it's voiced by uh, Rich Sommer, who was on uh, Mad Men. And uh, the character basically looks just like him, too. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, okay, which character are, was he? Uh, alone in the... Uh, he's the main character. Oh, in Mad Men? Yeah. He was the one who was in charge of television, and he always had the big black glasses on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, okay. Yeah. Apparently, he's a really big gamer. Uh, board gamer, too. Very cool. Hmm. Yeah, and, uh, Very cool. He, he lends his voice to this, and um, it, the, there are a lot of Easter eggs in it. Uh, there are, for example, a lot of paperback books you find. One is written by, um, I forgot the first name, but the last name's Greenbrier, who is the father in Gone Home. Uh, and it kind of plays very similar to Gone Home as far as, you know, the way the story is fragmented. Oh, sure. So it's kind of like that uh, contemplative uh, sort of narrative that you, that you uncover as you explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I would say it's like a subgenre of games these days. So you've got Gone Home, you've got Firewatch, mm -hmm. you've got um, another game that just came across my radar um, earlier this week from uh, speaking to somebody at Carnegie Mellon, and it's called, um, uh, hold on, it's called What Remains of Edith Finch? Oh, I just saw that on Steam. It just like came across on my feature banner, but I didn't actually look into it. What's that one about? It's sort of like Gone Home, but spookier. Ah, um, all right. We've got a lot of spooky advocates here at Filament. For sure, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I've also been playing uh, the alpha early release of uh, Walden, a game. Oh, very nice. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah, I saw that just, uh, that was like just last month that that uh, popped out, right? Yeah, so I had to, I had to play it. Yeah, yeah. and how <laughs> is it? Early, early thoughts, early impressions? Um, well, it also uh, has excellent voice acting. It has Emil Hirsch. As Thoreau, Whoa. Henry David Thoreau, which is interesting because he was in Into the Wild. Yeah, sure. Film version. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's so, a modern day, more tragic Walden <laughs> in a way. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't exactly make it. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> huh. uh, so I've been just fascinated by that as far as, you know, using games as a central text. Uh, and it's interesting how they're story driven. And I'm writing an article right now um, about empathy in games and where that comes into play oh, with uh, story, 
more like story-driven games, not games that have a necessary uh, win state. You know, mm-hmm. you don't win gone home. <laughs> That's yes, you know? right? Right. You <laughs> yeah. don't. You don't win by reading Walden upon. Yeah, I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about empathy in games. That's a really that's always been an interesting topic to me, uh, particularly in the way that games, um, games as a medium are unique and that they project you into a role inside this space. So uh, you're given a first-person avenue into a world, uh, and from there you can have an empathy practice, right? You, could, you as that character, could care about people, etc. Um, other types of media can create characters that are sympathetic, right, Though that, that you may... Uh, care about them and what happens to them. Uh, but that's a little different to me than the actual practice of empathy where you're actually trying to reach out and uh, emotionally connect as you to someone else. So I always felt like games have this really unique opportunity to first give you the option of being uh, you, which then comes with the very related term selfish. Mm-hmm. And then seeing whether or not the game can challenge you from that identity to actually reach out and care about someone or something else inside that space. Uh, games are also famous for being uh, playgrounds of psychopathy, right? So, like, <laughs> you can do horrible, heinous things in the <laughs> realm of a game because it is a game, because it is a liberation of not actually being the world it is. Um, right. Well, you don't have those real world consequences and you're in the illusory mindset, mm-hmm. Yep, as Bernard Suit says. But you are um, also, what I, I'm observing from interviewing some people and just reflecting myself, <clears throat> that the better cases of empathy I'm seeing in games and potentially with the VR also, is having empathy for the NPCs, the non-playable characters mm-hmm. in the game space. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be more effective than uh, relying on the the character you're taking agency over, because you're still sometimes, but not always. But you're still given a voice. Yeah. So you know you you know in a cutscene you might hear something. Um, in a VR experience, you might hear a narr- narrator. Um, but what you're, it's like good fiction, you're, um, you know, good written fiction or film, mm-hmm. um, your empathy are, is also for other characters. So mm-hmm. I think character development for those NPCs is important. Yeah, I feel like I was just reading the other day about a game that does that very effectively. It may have been Dishonored, I want to say, um, where the the guards are having ongoing conversations with each other about their oh, personal lives. Uh-huh. Like, oh, my wife can't wait until I get home later. I sure mm-hmm. hope nobody stabs me. You know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, One more day till I retire. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've definitely seen instances of that where, uh, particularly in a game like that, where you you sort of are the arbiter of life and death <laughs> yes. in some ways. Um, yeah, you, they, they do kind of challenge you to think of these as, as real uh, characters with like a real, uh, a real life that you can mm-hmm. completely upset <laughs> by, uh, by negatively impacting that character. I'll put yeah. that nicely. Dishonored did that cognitive dissonance thing, which I disagree with as well, that mm. 
you could only unlock the optimal ending if you chose a non-violent path and mm. snuck all your way through. Mm-hmm. But every single reward that you earn along the way inside the game yeah. is for the purpose of murder. Yeah, it's uh, it's tailor-made for fighting dudes. Right, so <laughs> I, I know that, I, I mean, you can tell that from their perspective, they were doing an interesting yeah. interplay between narrative and mechanics. Right. But to me, I actually, I, I stopped playing it once I read that. I was like, oh, well, I want to murder everybody. Oh, sure. Because clearly this is, this game is a, Long form murder fantasy game, and you are in the losery mindset. We're gonna yeah, double, yes, double, yeah, double yeah. down on that. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a game. It's a power fantasy game yeah. around being a super powerful assassin. Right. Right. Uh, so the idea that I was going to be robbed of not only just oh the ultimate, uh, you like know, the outcome of the, the outcome, but along the way, hmm. they would be giving me coupons that I couldn't cash in. <laughs> right. You know, like that's. Uh, very frustrating. Uh, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's, I mean, it almost, it's as if it, it begs for, you know, a separate progression tree, essentially. Right, exactly. And there's definitely games that do that effectively. I can, you right. know, Skyrim is a game that does that effectively. Mm-hmm. Or in, in where I teach, um, Undertale is enormously popular. Mm, where you can play yes. the, what they call the genocide route or, you know, we're playing peace or play peacefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that game and that game makes all those choices interesting, right? And it also right. makes doing the peaceful thing a, a different type of challenge. You're yeah. like, it's it's more, it's it's interesting puzzles, right? So kind of like it reveals a whole other alternate way of playing and rewards as such as you go, right? Which is uh, optimal. I don't know. I, mean, I I would be actually shocked if Dishonored didn't ultimately get patched or something about about that front. So maybe they did better. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, we, we can remain grumpy old men about it for the time being. Yes, though. I'm opposed. <laughs> I'm grumpy. Yeah. Get off my lawn, Dishonored. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so uh, <laughs> that that very enjoyable tangent aside, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the book. Um, so, uh, Matthew, can you tell us just a little bit about, or I'm sorry, Matt, tell me a little bit more about like why you set out uh, to write this book, kind of what motivated you originally, and then, um, then maybe we can get into a little bit about like what's new in this revised edition, and and kind of what motivated you to put out, you know, um, some additional information. You know, presumably, uh, I, I can I can infer that knowing where I from where I'm sitting, the game based learning market moves very fast, and things change very rapidly, especially well, really in any technological industry and so i can i can see uh i could see a a need for many revisions Mm -hmm. (laughs) on an ongoing (laughs) basis um so yeah let's talk about that for a little bit sure uh well the book the book i kind of relates interrelates to my story of using games in the classroom Uh, i'm an early adopter of icivics games Mm. oh yeah we like those um, you like those yes (laughs) Back in 2009, when it was called Our Courts, yes, I think, yeah. <laughs> yep. So that's around mm-hmm. when I started, and I and do I have a rights? One of the first ones I was bold enough to use for an entire class period, oh, rather cool. than assigning a game for homework or like you know for fast finishers. Sure, go play as a, this as game. a reward. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right. So um, that that was my inception point, and then uh, I was in graduate school getting a master's degree. And uh, between getting the master's and going for the doctorate, I started to write for Edutopia because I saw some articles on game-based learning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I can do that, right? 
So I um, began writing for them, blogging for them, because, well, frankly, they have a much larger readership than my Blogspot account had. <laughs> a little amplification and, um, there. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. <laughs> and um, uh, I believe it was Betty Ray, who's uh, one of the editors there. Uh, she's the one that kept um, suggesting that I just keep writing about game-based learning uh, rather than j- going all over for different ed tech topics. Mm. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole. Sure. When I was in, the, in graduate school, one of the books that really influenced me was from Susie Boss, and it's called, or it, it, well, it still is, called, um, <laughs> um, a f- it's called um, Reinventing, I think, Project-Based Learning. Okay. And it was a field guide to project-based learning. And I noticed there was no field guide to game-based learning. And at mm-hmm. this time, I was bookmarking and starting folders on my computer from, you know, from Institute of Play and um, iCivics lesson plans that were even non-digital ones. Um, and all sorts of lessons like that, but they were fragmented and all over the place on my computer. Uh, but I knew they were really engaging. And then when I got into graduate school, we had a, a design your own project, project, right? Mm-hmm. Which um, one of the suggestions was, um, was a uh, book proposal. And um, this is the book that I proposed ah. back in 2014. <laughs> wow, so I got That's accepted. Handy. I was like, oh, now I have to write this book. <laughs> <laughs> they tricked you. It was a trap. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that happened last year, too. I, I, I wrote a grant with Games for Change uh-huh. uh, for movable game jams. And, you know, it was like a Hive digital media grant. And then it was like, oh, we got the grant. Oh, no. We have to do this. <laughs> what have we done? <laughs> what have we done? You know, a year later, we're still writing it up. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, researching the book was actually terrific for me be- personally because the way- at some point I realized that when I interview somebody, um, I get content, obviously, by transcribing it. But I also get 30 minutes to pick somebody's brain, you know, a real expert. And it was just like, for me, it was almost addictive. Uh, I just kept interviewing more and more people. And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, I go to lunch, I go on Skype, and I have a master class with Jim G. You know? yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> or or uh, designers and other experts. Or, you know, I just, you know, sit in the car and I record a chat with Kurt Squire or something. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, that just kept happening over and over. And um, I... I soon realized that the field of game-based learning is also a tight-knit community of practice. Um, you know, I've been to uh, GLS mm-hmm. um, and other conferences as well, and, you know, the same faces, and, you know, it's a really um, tight-knit group. But, again, I felt that that warranted being in a book also, because nothing is happening in a vacuum that's successful, that's not to say, you know, people aren't developing things on the side. Right. But, you know, as a whole, this group really um, works together. Um, I, it's something Greg Toppa wrote, and I didn't observe this at first until he wrote it in the uh, books, New Forward, uh, that we don't compete against each other. When somebody new pops in the scene, we mentor one another or bring each other into the fold. Um, in a... Uh, in a more academic sense, you could say that we are, you know, um, the experts are mentoring the, uh, the uh, newcomers into our community of practice, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you could also say, I also kind of view it as a co- large cooperative game. 
like we're all playing pandemic together <laughs> and you know we we all have to win this thing called you know the educational system yeah yeah <laughs> i love it yeah i you know i think that's that's been my experience as well uh having entered the space from the outside you know like uh dan norton he's been here since since the beginning of time itself, um, <laughs> but uh, but with me, I you know I came in from outside of the learning games industry and very quickly realized that that you're totally right. It's a tight knit group. Um, there's a very consistent landscape of personalities and thinkers and luminaries mm-hmm. uh, in this in this space, um, and I think that uh, that has been what has really uh, been. It has taken me aback is the fact that yeah it is so collaborative it is uh, a lot of us are trying to make this happen make this a sustainable uh, product category in a lot of ways like a, a, a way of of making and building content that that has a real positive impact but can also keep people you know sustainably employed while they do it mm-hmm. um, so yeah that's been that's been really cool to observe as well well I've um I've started to think after I, I spoke to um, another person in our in our community of practice, uh, Remy Kalir, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he he co-authored a paper which he shared with me uh, maybe two years ago about gameful learning practices. And um, one thing he mentions, and he writes about this too in um, in uh, uh, Carol Williams Pierce's book, Teacher Pioneers. Sure. That came mm-hmm. out uh, at the end of last year mm-hmm. um, on ETC Press. That um, teaching itself can be gameful, and I th- and his uh, idea of gameful learning um, is like this big Venn diagram where uh, you have a loosery attitude. You know, you're in that playful mindset. Mm-hmm. You have identity play, and then you've got this idea of ignorance in that you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the outcome. Mm-hmm. And that generates a bit of a, of excitement. And that's in good games that you'd want to play over and over. But it's also in teaching when you bring a game to a student. You know, if I bring a board game like Pandemic to my sixth grade students to teach them about the Columbian Exchange mm. through the lens of, you know, how diseases travel in the networks of the world. Sure. And just watching them excited as they play. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't know where the game's um, going to go. And, uh, you know, of course, Zach Gilbert, right? Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> so once he remarked to me uh, that we have to just go where the game takes us. Mm. And, th- you know, part of that is engaging when you're a classroom teacher. You, know, you don't want to teach out of a manual right. and go step by step and go out of the book. It gets really boring really fast. Right. So uh, well, there's something about using games in the classroom that's exciting for the teacher as well as the student. Well, I think, you know, if if I may pontificate for a moment, I feel like with K-12, a lot of what we're focused on right now is uh, cr- preparing people for the 21st century workplace um, and, you know, how to be employable and how to, um, you know, how to succeed in an environment like that. And I think that one key advantage of the dynamic you're uh, uncovering is that real life is organic and unpredictable in a way that a classroom curriculum is not. Yes. <laughs> like real life will catch you off guard all the time. So when you're talking about going where the game takes you, it's like that That in many ways as a lesson, as a, as a learning experience is far more analogous to a day, a day in, the, in the life of an adult. Yeah, that's, that's legit. I think, I think there's also some kind of, there's a strange irony that a game 
creates a sense of liberty and agency because generally the vast majority of what a game is are the constraints about what you're allowed to do. It's mostly about what you can't do. <laughs> like you, you put a box around your actual agency as a human being and say, well, these are the ways you can interact and that's it. But because those are arranged in such a way to make an interesting problem, you know, you've got, you've got a sense of, yeah, you have a sense of freedom and agency, even though most of it's been taken away. Hmm. It's just weird how rules can make you free. I feel like I'm, I'm like I'm about to reveal that I'm a supervillain. Yeah, That's what it sounds like. <laughs> like. I was gonna say we're gonna redraft yeah. the Filament Games Handbook and Big Brother. Yeah, I was gonna say I've, I've gone straight Orwellian by accident, <laughs> but it's true. It, right, like a game is a game is built out of the rules and constraints that limit what you can do. But because they're arranged in a way to highlight your agency, highlight your capabilities in a particular direction, and show rewards, sure. Uh, you are activated as someone who has possibility and right. uh, and your intrinsic motivation takes on. And when you're doing what you want, that doesn't really bother you what you can't. Yeah, I wonder what, how that associates with just like paralysis of choice, you know? Oh, yeah. Because I feel like that's the other side of that. Yes. It's like too many options yes. freezes you. So when you well, limit the... Oh, go ahead, Matthew. Oh, I was going to say it's, um, it's this concept, and it's been written up a written about before, and I didn't come up with this phrasing, but it's uh, constraints breed creativity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you look at something like haiku, right, or if you look at how the communities grow, grew out on Twitter with the constraints of, of character limits and, and right. hashtags as yep. curation, or how um, cloud-based computing um, exploded when um, mobile phones didn't have local storage. Right. Oh, sure, sure. So it's like these, these constraints actually change in a positive sense the way that we operate. Right. And you can run right. the, the quick exactly. thought experiment where you're like, hey, kids, today we're going to all write haikus. Use however many syllables or lines as you want. <laughs> Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Like the bottom falls out. There's no people sure. aren't yeah. like wonderful. <laughs> you know, I've, no, yeah. I've I've noticed or observed that in uh, board games or tabletop games, um, you know, it's the social the the constraints are enforced by the the um, social dynamic of the group. Whereas the video game, uh, the fun is learn is learning the rules yes. is uh, pouring into those constraints. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. You also get some weird intersections in which gamers who approach a game as in uh, the sense of, I am only constrained by what is actually possible, sometimes run against the grain inside social games where people expect social conventions to uh, hold. Um, so uh, like in a World of Warcraft game where PvPing is possible, right? You can kill other players on specific servers uh, and some people were like, well, I'm going to do that all day for no benefit other yeah. than misery. Um, now people are like, why? Why are you doing this to me? Oh, it's, cause I, it's because I can. Yeah, exactly. And I happen to eat and breathe Schadenfreude. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and, uh, I remember uh, at one point in World of Warcraft, sorry to, to drum on, on such an ancient game. No, but, that's all right. Uh, it's still going. It's still going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a newly found exploit where you could stand on the roof in one of the 
uh, neutral towns. I think it was Gadgets on the Goblin Town, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you could stand on the roof, and the guards couldn't get at you while you picked off other players. I remember that. And Blizzard uh, was like, "Well, we're going to ban you if you do that." And gamer, the gamers, I think, fair response was like. We are able to do this. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you want us to not be able to do this, prevent it. Right. Don't just tell us no. Mm-hmm. There is no there is no rule of law inside World of Warcraft. No. As, as you know, it is it is what is possible and what is not. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, they uh they I think they first like walled off that thing arbitrarily and then they put in guards that will beat the snot out of you if you yeah. get on the roof. So yep. uh, they fixed it in the appropriate way. Uh, but it was, in, it was an interesting tension because they were like, if you didn't want us up here. <laughs> you should have made it impossible. You should have made it impossible. <laughs> yeah, you you have the, the deific powers yes. <laughs> over this place. Yeah. Uh, funny. Um, all right. So uh, I want to just quickly just turn back to the book quickly because um, I know we're getting a little bit short on time. So um so yeah, let's let's quickly just dive in about how kind of how you see this this second revision going out and and kind of what again what motivated that that revision of the book and what the differences are what people should look for in that new copy. Sure. Um, well, I was approached to um, to write a new version of it, a, a revision, a second edition. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, as you as you uh, mentioned earlier, because the industry changes so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was just so much more to add, mm-hmm. but also I grew over the years. Um, I, I would say I was writing about game-based learning. I felt still kind of like an outsider of game-based learning when I wrote the first version. And this, I would have to say I'm, I'm more friendly with people, um, you know, just from meeting them. Oh, know? sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, there weren't a lot of barriers for me to say, hey, can I interview your company about this? You know, mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Sure. I, I had more access. You just had cool. more of a network at that point. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, more of a network. And, um, and that, that enabled me to, uh, to not only um, interview more people, but to add more critique to um, where game-based learning could be rather than some other directions that it was at. Um, so in this particular case... I looked at, like, um, I don't know, we'll take one brand, for example, Kahoot, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Kahoot, they, they do, you know, these online quizzes yes. often, right? Um, and that, that became very popular very fast. Yes. And, um, you know, I've had my critiques here or there, mm-hmm. but um, the uh, co-founder contacted me, and I spoke to him and another um, teacher that adapted Kahoot into our classroom, and... Um, they do something called blind cahoots, which I write about, which is uh, applying this game design to it, where you know you don't know the answers, and the teacher is giving this playful. It's a you know, do, first of all, the company doesn't even say do cahoots twenty four seven every class. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that that's something I learned, uh, and they're a platform, so people all do what they all want. The time. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, all, yeah. It's not like that, and it's like. Um, you know, it's you give a little instruction. They take they answer a question. They don't get the first couple of questions correct because it's being it's a way to introduce new content in mm-hmm. a playful way, rather than stand up there with like you know a PowerPoint. And go oh, interesting, things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was quite interesting. And um, so I was able to um, learn best practices from companies 
that weren't quite able to get their voice out loud enough. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times people will just dump a quiz in a Kahoot and, you know, it's like saying, um, you know, all of Twitter is bad because of, you know, the celebrities' tweets, let's say, you know. It, it is what it, it is. Um, it's not, I'm trying to think of how to word this. Um, you know, there's uh, best practices that, mm-hmm. that needed highlighting, right? Absolutely. Um, and uh, other, other instances I was able to expand on in this book were, um, were from, uh, let's see here, um, what games are. I had an expanded chapter on all of the um, definitions of games, in particular, uh, art games, games as art. Mm. I had a long conversation with, um, with uh, Mary Flanagan, who is both an academic as well as a game maker. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to um, <clears throat> expand out a chapter on what balanced design games are, games that are not chocolate-covered broccoli, right. the games that have learning goals that are aligned with the core mechanics in the game. Um, and um, I expanded on platforms where games can be played, uh, play theory as well. Mm. And um, I expanded on Minecraft, of course. Of course. And on uh, digital toys and, and puzzles. And I had a, a great conversation with Bill Ritchie, who's the uh, co-founder of um, Think Fun. Very cool. And, cool. you know, so, they have these brainy puzzles that you can buy almost anywhere. And, um, mm. you know, he's very enthusiastic. He's a recreational mathematician, as it turns out. <laughs> and, so and so a nerd? Late, <laughs> yeah. Not only that, he, he, he says he's not that smart. He said his, his late brother was a, got all the brains. Now, his late brother um, uh, passed away maybe like two years ago. And his brother was Dennis Ritchie, who's a co-inventor, or the inventor, rather, of the uh, the C computer language. Oh, yeah. Well, that's 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 quite a pedigree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite a pedigree. Right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. They yeah. never bothered so, making a D. That was it. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Well, like, this they is added good. a couple of sh- they did some pluses, pluses or a sharp yeah. here and there, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's um, it. So, and then I was able to speak more to uh, game jams as a model, um, as sure. well as the uh, the National STEM Video Game Challenge and. Uh, Really expand on lots of themes and go deeper in in places. Man, that, so that is that's the definition of a field guide. That's yeah, <laughs> an exploratory survey of everything that's going on. That sounds super comprehensive. More um, teachers, more models of how it works and how it looks, and awesome. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, it was fun to write. Uh, but I mean, this was my last year. This is my timeline. So obviously teaching, and then I'm. Uh, a university um, adjunct in the evenings these days. Mm-hmm. Okay. But like last year, my, after I defended my dissertation in March, I was approached then to write this book revision. So immediately after writing, or slogging, I should say, through that, I had to almost rewrite the entire book. Oh, you, know, no. you, you, you can't just tag on 20,000 words. It's, right. <laughs> it's, I would say it's about 70 or 80% completely new and longer. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Right, and and then it was another book adapting my dissertation into a book, so um, it, you know, lots of writing. So you got some carpal tunnel right now, <laughs> yeah. is what you're saying? <laughs> oh, I can't even type. <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, for my own, this may be a selfish question, but got any techniques or tips for someone who thinks they decide they want to write a book? Yes, I do, and uh, my 
my editor, uh, my, I have two editors, um, she remarked that I'm actually better at networking than writing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm good at writing. I shouldn't say that. But she said right. my, my expertise is actually in networking. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, actually, I do teach a course in uh, writing at Rutgers University in the evenings. And uh, my recommendations are as follows to them. Uh, that is to write about something you like. Uh, okay. they, I would not be able to write uh, all these books and articles about another facet of education that did not interest me at all. Sure. You know, like, um, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pick on another part of schooling, but I don't know. Pork based uh, learning. This is something, yes, <laughs> not, a, not exactly. a great field. <laughs> no. Yeah. And another thing is, um, uh, interviewing people is great because you really get to know them. Um, transcribing is a horrible thing. Yes. But when you're done, do you do get, you're right, right. But you do get a lot of words, right? Mm -hmm. You do get a lot yeah. of content. That's true. So um, that that part's fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the researching part is fun. Cool. But as long as it's something you like. Okay. All right. There you go. So write what you like and ideally something you know, but mostly what you like. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's never me staring at a, uh, you know, at word with the blinking cursor, like on a TV show, right? Like show a writer. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's never that. It's always me just like, you know, it's just writing, like transcribing and then um, moving sections around. And mm. It's more editing than um, sure. just cold writing. Interesting. You're, you're harvesting and assembling. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Yes. yes. Well, so you've interviewed Jim G, but one of the things that always impressed uh -huh. me about Jim G was when he talks, it always struck me. I was like, you know, he's basically just writing a book out loud. Like his, his, his thinking was always so cleanly formed and he was described, it, it just sounded like I'm just describing reality to you in such a way that you should probably be writing this down. <laughs> you know, at GLS two years ago, I think it was in 2015, mm -hmm. I remember he was giving his fireside chat and as he's speaking, Barry Joseph, yes. um, he just shouts out, the voice of God. Yeah, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, too funny. <laughs> um, so, so Matt, I just want to ask quickly, I think to, uh, to wrap things up, the most important thing we need to ask is where can this book be found today? Uh, in your grocer's freezer. All right. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. Right next excellent. to the Tostino's pizza rolls, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on, it's on Amazon and it's in, um, Barnes and Noble, some locations, definitely online. I've done some appearances lately at Barnes and Noble. They, because they, they've, uh, their store, well, you know, bookstores these days, right? But mm -hmm. they're, um, <laughs> yeah. th they've actually done some amazing things with bringing um, strategy board games into their stores. And, oh, really? Um, Fascinating. And, and they, have a, they have a maker day a couple of times a year. They bring in, uh, they have little bits and spheros in their store. Hmm. Very um, cool. So it's been a pretty good fit. So I've, I've spoken at a couple of Barnes & Nobles. So they're there. And of course, on college campuses at Barnes & Nobles. Yep. And um, definitely on uh, Amazon. All right. All right. Awesome. Amazon, the, the hive were, were all yeah, products. That's a website, right? Yeah. Where you can order various goods. Just anything. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. You'd be surprised. It's crazy. Um, all right. Well, Matthew, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us today. Um, uh, really excited about this new version of the book. We're definitely going to go check it out um, and encourage all of our many listeners to go check it out. Oh, as you're well. in it. 
And mm-hmm. yes, it, it. well, I mean, my ears are burning. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, I do mention a very important fact that Filament Games and Shell Games both have a gong in their studio. I didn't know that Shell had a gong. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. The more you know. Uh, the more we know. I almost, I don't want to ask which one's bigger. I think <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just leave it the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's great we they use our gong to hit their gong yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's crazy all right well i'm, I'm glad that piece of cultural ephemeras is now in print <laughs> yeah <laughs> great um, for the ages excellent well again thank you so much matt for being on the show um it's been a real pleasure speaking to you um and yeah everybody go check out the book yeah yes thanks again for your support um i remember uh last year um, the first edition was at ISTE. That's right. On, yeah. your, at, on your display. That's mm-hmm. right. Yep. Next to a very tiny gong. <laughs> very, very tiny gong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, thanks so much. Um, we'll be in touch soon. Um, this is really exciting. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks so much. So we got one other thing to cover today. Yes. One other great segment. Uh-huh. That segment is the Outwa. The Outwa. The Outwa. Here's what the Outwa is, in case anyone's unacquainted, in case they've missed the other episodes of this season, uh, for whatever reason. The Outwa is the acronym of the week. Yes. Yes. And uh, basically what it is, is we surface an acronym. We analyze that acronym, try to determine what it's for, where it's from, why it does what it does. And then we rate the acronym in terms of whether it's in line with what we feel are the standards that should govern acronyms. Yeah. Should we, I'd like to talk briefly about, I think we have we have knocked out some of the corners of what a good acronym is. I think that's true. Right? So yeah. it should be pronounceable. Yep. Uh, and it should not be dirty. Yep. Unless that's really the point, I suppose. I guess. Um, what else have we learned? The, the hiding of words is offensive to us. Yes, and it should, yes, yeah, no words should be tucked away out of existence in the yep. acronym. Yep. Yeah. Which we have, we have adhered to with outwa, mm-hmm. which is also highly pronounceable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we, we, we coined outwa before we'd, we'd begun to learn about what a good acronym really is. If we so. knew then what we yeah. know now. Um, so, so here's what I've got to offer today. Okay. Asian. Asian. A-S-E-A-N. Asian. Oh, okay. Um, what do you think? Came across it last night, and I was like, I know what I'm going to do with that. Are you sure it's not a Sean? Well, <laughs> I, I could be. <laughs> with that spelling, you, yeah. you might be picking at one of its many deficiencies. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. All or, right. Or is it a deficiency? ASEAN, 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 yeah, just one, one shot, yeah, that's all you need, that's the saying, right, <laughs> <laughs> that is not the saying, <laughs> Daniel, all right, <laughs> what do you think, uh, I have no idea, all right, well, <laughs> can I have like a, 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 a context, or like, maybe uh, use it in a sentence, some like half hint. It is what it sounds like. Oh, so it's 
Um, okay, so then I'll be like a Sean enabling acronyms nimbly. Yep, that was it. Yeah, nice. <laughs> a famous association in Ireland somewhere. Yeah. Now what? It, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go right to the end here. I'm gonna spoiler alert. What it actually means is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. So oh. now this is why it struck me. I was like, that's an acronym that is like a mangling of what it actually is. Yes. It's a new category. Right. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait. Or, or I guess that's the question. Do should we, we like be it? offended by, <laughs> or should we applaud them? Because it's spelled slightly different. So they're like, it's Asian. Yeah. But it's still, but it's, it is what it it's is. It's like. Uh, Southeast Asian nations. Southeast Asian nations. Mm-hmm. What do we think? Hmm. At the risk of offending an entire region I think it's got pluck. I think it is a, I think it is a, uh, it is a, is a good acronym. I think it's peppy. I agree. Um, they did get rid of the of. That's true. It's not Aussian. That's a slight mark against it. Yeah. So that's a slight. It's a ding. Demerit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is. But it, it is, is plucky. It You're is right. plucky. It's a plucky acronym. Yeah. So I, I will, I will give it credit for that. All right. It also made me smile when I found out what it was. Me too. Yeah. 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 So I think that, that we should use that as another, does it bring joy? <laughs> Because really, can, we give it four out of five smiles. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's a fair. That's what, acronyms should bring joy. I All think right. that's a new standard. All right, a new rule for acronyms. Yeah, and Asian fits the bill. Yep. Thanks, Asian. All right. Well, we've aired that out. Yeah, we've covered it. Yeah. That's all the time we have for today. And so I wish to you listeners a good day to you. <laughs> I said good day. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what goes on inside our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher.